Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM, let's create. Like it was never framed to me that way. For me, it was framed like, oh, if you be a lawyer you'll be safe. If you'll be a doctor, it'll be safe. And that's a good path. And it was not until recently that I realized like, oh, these are fields that like Asian people have sort of been allowed to be successful at or have sort of been predefined. When I grew up, like I knew Asian people who were doctors and I knew lawyers who were Asian people. And like, it's sort of like, a, oh, like there's a way to do that. I didn't really know any writers who were Asian or like I didn't know that many there weren't a lot of Asian people on screen. Like, there, that was always a thing that I just did not think was a path for me because there were, there were not enough people for it to become, like, a thing that you thought you could do. That was Johnny Sun. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. This week on the show is uh, a writer named Johnny Sun. He is most known for his very clever and life-affirming words on Twitter.com. And uh, he hates, absolutely hates, the idea of being uh, an online celebrity. But he is kind of an online celebrity whose very real and, and beautiful words translates to the page in his book, Everyone's an Alien When You're an Alien Too. There are some typos and misspellings in that title of the book. I don't really know how to pronounce those, so I'm not going to try. The point is, Johnny's work, which initially started through Twitter, has garnered all kinds of attention. 
Most recently, he illustrated a book for Lynn Manuel Miranda, the former star of Hamilton. It's called Good Morning, Good Night. Oh, I guess I should have also mentioned he's an illustrator, but he's also a designer, an engineer, a doctoral student at MIT. He has the kind of resume that uh, immediately elicits envy, but simultaneously is the kind of person that is uh, so warm and uh, humble that all that envy just feels really foolish. So anyway, I really enjoyed this episode. Johnny is, is, is very smart and a very talented writer whose talents are now being brought into the writer's room of BoJack Horseman, which, uh, for my money, is one of the best shows on television right now. It was a joy to talk to him. Before we get into it, though, again, I want to emphasize... Tuesday feels like uh, a presidential election, and in many ways it has the gravity of something like a presidential election. In fact, it may even be more important. So um, if you are on the fence about voting and you're registered, please uh, get out there and vote. Tell your friends and family to vote, except for the ones who um, are voting for Trump affiliates, in which case, just tell them to stay home. Buy them a dinner, have a, have a movie night at their house. Let them stay home and relax. All will be okay in the morning. Also, uh, a handful of you have written out uh, through email and through uh, social media about this movie I made. It is called Sebastian. Um, it's about my grandfather that immigrated here in the 40s from Mexico to America. This is a longer conversation that I'll have on the show down the line, but uh, making a movie is very, very challenging, and uh, I've made four of them this year, and <laughs> I think I'm only okay with like two and a half of them, but it has been a wonderful learning experience, and I hope those who listen to the show will uh, join me in this other path, if you're interested in that. But if not, well, hey. There will always be the podcast. So, finally, here is Johnny Sun. Johnny Sun. Hello. How do you feel about doing interviews in general? Um, I kind of like them. I think it depends. Like, it depends on the mood and kind of the type of interview it is. Uh -huh. Sometimes I get really anxious and yes. like, tense. And I feel like whenever I do, like, I don't even know, like, what, I don't know. I, maybe it's just in my head, but whenever I go into, like, a studio, I feel like I tense up. Yeah. And maybe it's just because it's equipment and yes. stuff and it makes me feel, like, anxious well it's like fluorescent lighting and there's a lot of people and using yeah. terms that you do not know and uh -huh. don't need to know right and there's like an engineer and there's like knobs and equipment and yeah. i'm just like oh I, I i feel totally very official yeah exactly I, i've heard you describe yourself as a pretty anxious person uh -huh, uh -huh. is that is that a fair description of you right now i think so i like i like i i, I kind of like saying i i guess i prefer like just being someone who has anxiety as opposed to like an anxious person but i guess both of those are true what's the distinction in your heart well i think like anxious anxiousness like i think saying like this person is an anxious person means or the the image it paints in my head is like oh they're constantly like on this 
thing and that's their like defining feature Mm -hmm. i think like saying like i have anxiety like i think a lot of people have anxiety and it's like a more it feels like a more um like normal normalized way of saying it 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 kind of makes it feel like oh this is just a person and they also have anxiety i want to get right into this because Uh (laughs) you um on this exact note of anxiety Uh uh-huh you are someone who I think many people listening will know you from perhaps your book, but mostly uh, your Twitter account, sure, yeah. which is in the history of this show, uh-huh. we have had no one oh, on gosh. Okay, that, is, that is online famous. Uh-huh. Like, it, that's so weird to me. It's, is, I, is it strange? It is. It which is. part of this is strange? I mean, I feel like there's... It's interesting because it's strange that we haven't had anyone on or that. Oh, no, no, no. I don't think I, I think that's fine. I think that's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think like the just the term Internet famous is like a, a weird thing because I we think can it, get rid of it. Give me a better one. Um, like writer person. <laughs> OK. Or like creative person or a just, writerly person. Yeah. Writerly. Per- I like I think I don't know. I've, I have this weird relationship with like the like the idea of being like online famous or like twitter mm-hmm. celebrity or whatever that label is because i don't feel that way do you think it has some sort of negative connotation i think there's a limiting effect i think for sure you say that and people put you in that box uh-huh. or they or they they it has enough like i think enough people have been defined by that that now there is kind of an idea of what that image looks like mm-hmm. and it, i think it signals certain things and i don't think that that doesn't feel true to me at all. Right. Like I kind of still use Twitter as the way to just like put stuff out there and kind of, I feel like I'm, whenever I use it, it's kind of fun. And I'm like, I feel like I'm just connecting to like the people I follow and like this thing that exists and it sort of feels social. Like it feels way more social than anything else. And I think a lot of people who have that label of like internet famous, there's like that idea that, people are trying to build like a brand or an right, audience an or empire. Like, yeah and to use it to get famous and i i have never felt that way so. right there's definitely i think in, in some people's minds this idea of a, a vapid mm-hmm. person mm-hmm. which was not my uh, <laughs> right yeah uh-huh. not my goal in, uh-huh. in calling you that but yeah. the reason i bring this up is because when it comes to social media mm-hmm. there may be nothing else in this life uh-huh. that gives me more anxiety <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. than social media. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm especially bad at it. I, I, I don't think my personality translates so well on sure. there. So I want to start with. Well, that. why do you think, why do you think you're, what <laughs> aspects of that? Talk easy with Johnny son. Yeah. <laughs> um, here's the thing. This is actually kind of why I had you on. Okay, cool. Is because I think in my day to day, I am sometimes like annoyingly uh, sincere about things that I'm saying, mm-hmm. but I'm also just as much of an asshole as anyone sure, else. Sure, yeah. But your your brand, and I use that in quotes because uh-huh. I, I hate that term. Yeah. He's uh, he is also air quoting. I'm doing. I'm doing it. Your brand is like you're pretty sincere. I actually I read like hundreds of your tweets oh, today. Geez. Oh, wow. Well, thank which you. Which I almost. <laughs> became crazy but except for the <laughs> yeah. fact that uh, you're actually very positive and earnest uh-huh. Uh-huh. so i want to know how do you manage to stay hopeful uh-huh. given that you spend so much time in a space that is predominantly negative yeah uh-huh i think like there's a few things well one like 
I I push back a little bit on it's pre- not predominantly negative. I push think back. I think like there are pockets, and I think I've like there are people that I follow who also are kind of like cautiously optimistic or kind of try to be hopeful. And I think there is, I like the people who, um, it seems like the, like being hopeful and that kind of attitude is intentional and is, is a response to all the negative stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't like the people who are kind of like blindly, yeah, hopeful or like people who are like kind of just not like they're living in this like bubble where their life famed. is good, right? Yeah, and um and so I don't know. I think I've found people who have that similar kind of mentality, um of of like that kind of hopeful optimism or the cautious whatever is whatever that is, um which makes Twitter kind of nice because the world is like on fire, and then I go online and I see a bunch of people who like are talking about ways to enact change or there's like there's an active element to it there's kind of like a social element to it it feels like they're talking to community and it feels like there's hope because stuff can happen Mm -hmm. um and i like that and then i also think like what was the other part of that what was the 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 part about so it's predominantly said it's a predominantly negative space. You want to unpack all the things that you disagree with? No, I was trying to remember the rest of the beginning of that question because I think I latched onto that part. Um, How do you stay sane? Oh yeah, I think um, I think I've found like a, a a piece of it. I think I've found like something about it that is like personally helpful and constructive to me. Um, I think it's kind of it's sort of a place where I go to share stuff that it's hard for me to find people to share that with in real life. Mm -hmm. And it's like a lot of it has been talking about like mental health and kind of my experiences with it and me trying to like understand it. It also coincides, I think with the fact that I am no longer seeing a therapist. And so like, Mm -hmm. that's the place I go to like talk about this stuff. Um, Everyone can be your therapist now. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Crowdsourced therapy. Um, But it's kind of, I I think it's interesting because I I do that and then I kind of share it and and just write put words to the thing I'm trying to work out and then when I put it out there people will respond and say I feel this way too this is something that relates to me mm-hmm. um this is something that I n- never thought of how to put into words and now here are words like it's kind of cool and the thing that it helps me with is kind of understanding that this is a shared experience and it's not like this isolating thing that makes me lonely and strange and different from everybody else it's right. kind of like it's kind of a cathartic thing where I can share that and see other people feel similar ways or feel the same thing. And it kind of makes it like validates me and validates other people all at once. Right. And I kind of, I kind of like that. So you think you have a hard time expressing this person to person away from social media? I think so. I think like it's hard to talk about mental health. Mm-hmm. in like life like person to person conversations a lot of the time i think it's like getting easier and i think i make a real effort to do so why do you think it's hard i think there's just a, still a lot of stigma to it and i think it's it's easier among certain types of people and certain groups and stuff but it and i think i probably still feel a little um i'm i'm trying to like unlearn the idea of not talking about that mm-hmm. in person you know and i think it's like i think also unless you're talking to someone who relates exactly to kind of the stuff that you're going through, sometimes you don't get that level of like 
I know what you're talking about. Sometimes it feels like you're explaining yourself and trying to like validate your experiences to someone who isn't going through that. Uh huh. And that's hard. Right. Because um, then it seems like you're just talking. Yeah. And, and, and they're trying their best to understand. And right. they keep saying, I totally understand where you're coming from. Right. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I don't think they do. And it, and like, and that level, that sometimes is, um, it's just sometimes there's like a lot to get to, to get to that thing that you want to talk about. Mm. Right. Whereas I think there's like an interesting thing about talking to sort of like a crowd or like a group or that sort of thing where you kind of, you can say something and that's specific to a certain percentage of people and, and you kind of can reach that, those people and you don't have to reach everyone with everything you say. But if, if I can speak to this experience that other people out there share, then that's kind of this cool little micro thing that you've Mm. created. How did your parents feel about you publicly talking about issues of mental health? Cause I know when you first told them that you were going to a therapist, yeah. they were uh, reluctant. Yeah, I think it's just, it was something that was sort of unfamiliar to them. And like, I don't think they had known anyone who'd gone to therapy. Mm-hmm. And like, they definitely, it's like, culturally, I I think we don't talk about therapy in, in that community a lot. And so I think it's... Which community is this? I think I, I, think I mean like both the academic community and also like the Asian Canadian or the Chinese Canadian kind of world mm-hmm. or the version of that world that I grew up in. Cause I, I, I know just like saying that as like a whole is not accurate. Right. Um, but definitely I think the way I grew up, we didn't talk about that as much. I think maybe it's like, we didn't have, maybe it's not us, but I think like also culturally, like as a whole um, society wasn't talking about it as much. And I think like, I remember I talked to my parents a lot about, like, feeling sad and feeling upset a lot of the time and feeling worried a lot. And we those were the kind of terms we used to have this discussion, but we didn't call it anxiety. We didn't mm-hmm. call it depression. We didn't call it mental health. You were having those conversations back like growing I, up yeah, in Canada. Growing up and um, in high school a lot and kind of, I had, I did have a lot of these conversations with my parents, but we just never used that, those, like, terms, right? right? If you can go back in time, uh, thinking about the kind of kid you were in high school, yeah. what are what are some memories you have, some impressions? Let's see. I think there was a lot of like kind of confusion and a lot of kind of feeling. It's weird. It it felt like a lot of stuff that I didn't, I have like tried, or I guess I didn't care to remember. And then I remember like these really like, big spikes of like joyful memories and I think that's the stuff that I I try to remember a lot there's Mm. like obviously a lot of sad stuff and a lot of confusion and heartbreak and angst and anger and all that but then there are like these I think really joyful moments that I um latch on to and they're sort of like the like the things I remember most about high school maybe are the things that like I wish I had more of now which was just like hanging out with friends on the weekend and going to see a movie and going to see a movie that like changed your life. Mm -hmm. Like you don't get that a lot anymore. I feel like, I feel like now I see a movie and I'm kind of like, well, that was a bunch of stuff that happened and it's rarer to, to, to feel like my entire worldview has changed coming out of something like that. But But is that the movies changing or is that just the person? I think it's with, I think it's with, um, the more stuff you see, right? Like I think in high school you, you're at that certain age where like, these are sort of like, this is the first set of movies I'm seeing that aren't the movies my parents right. like, made me see. What, and, what movies are you thinking about? 
um, like I remember seeing Children of Men, and that was like <laughs> <laughs> right, um, that fun movie. That was yeah, a really fun movie. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. Uh, I saw In Bruges with my parents actually, mm-hmm. um, which is a weird choice to see with my parents. Um, but I remember really liking that. It's kind of funny. Like there was a cinema that was in Toronto called the Bloor Street Cinema, I think. Mm-hmm. And it was like this old theater. I know it. Yeah. Oh, cool. I, I think it's a hot docs theater now, yes. right? That's how I um, know it. And it's, but it used to just play old movies and stuff. And like, I'd go with my friends to see old movies sometimes and we'd watch, like part of it was like, we'd watch like classics or like, movies from the 80s that I had only seen on like my TV at home mm-hmm. on like the VHS or on the DVD or whatever and seeing it on the big screen and it's like the the print wasn't perfect because it was an old film right. and it was just like this cool experience of seeing it blown up on the screen and in this like really visceral way that totally changed the way you think of it so like these are things like Gremlins and like the Goonies and kind of like Indiana Jones and Back to the Future and um, like 2001 Space Odyssey and like kind of the classics that get played mm-hmm. a lot. Um, but it was a wild experience. It was just, it was cool to, maybe that was the thing that I remember most. And maybe it was just that environment of of not going to like the megaplex in your mall and going to this, these like special old, mm-hmm. like old, these special like single screen theaters and sitting in the old seats and feeling like, and smelling like the popcorn and the yeah. butter that like kind of has settled over the like decades. Yeah. No, it's that, that smells never going away. Yeah. And there's something just, um, there's something amazing about that. And it kind of makes you be like, Oh, there's, you can, you can find this stuff. And I think maybe that's part of it is cause like my parents or like growing up, I never, that was not part of my life. And then when I was in high school and I met a bunch of friends who, we just loved seeing movies and doing that stuff together and like finding that on your own and like looking for that in your city and being like, Oh, this is like a thing that I have discovered Mm. personally is, was really cool. Did you have any idea about wanting to write those kind of movies at that age or just write movies in general? I think I loved movies. I don't think I ever had the confidence to think I could do it. Mm -hmm. I think they were like, there was, a group of like kids and or like of my friends in high school who would kind of make movies all the time and they had a video camera and they would do all that stuff and I was never part of that group because I was like I don't know how to do that I don't know how to like write a movie or or do any of that stuff and it kind of was that confidence thing of just being like I there's no way I could do this and Mm -hmm. so I never tried and never thought about it but the thing that I did feel like I could do and the thing that I kind of fell into like my first love of writing was kind of doing plays and sketch comedy and like, um, like theater stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, in grade nine, I enrolled in, like I decided to take drama cause I was a super shy kid. And like, there was a moment where I was like, I think I should take drama just cause I, I feel like I need to do something else. Right. And I feel like this would help me because I love movies and I love acting and I love all this stuff. And now here's a class I can take and it's going to be scary. Did you feel stuck? before that i think so i think i think i felt like any kid who like was in school and kind of didn't really like it and felt like i like it was kind of just like a i guess i could like i guess school is just the thing you have to do and i think i was like good at math and good at science and 
felt fine doing it but then drama was like oh this is like an exciting mm -hmm. thing like this is a, the thing I'm, I'm looking forward to now and it was the thing that I just like fell in love with but and it was through that that like there was a player in class in grade 11 and in grade 12 there was like in like one of the main projects in drama was to do this thing called a docudrama which is like a sketch comedy show about like a subject mm -hmm. like an informational and like an edutainment kind of show um what did you do monsters <laughs> and we did we kind of like took a bunch of we did like a werewolves thing and like a zombie thing and a vampires thing and we kind of took all these like we watched a lot of old monster movies and kind of tried to figure out what like the tropes of each of those monsters was and kind of play with that or do like our version of it um and just like deconstruct what like culturally why those things existed and like what they were symbols for and um what they represented i guess mm. which was really fun and it was just it was it was kind of like it didn't feel like you were working it felt like you were just hanging out and like writing and performing these things and it was just like joyful and, right. and cool and that was i think that sort of turned me on to sketch and mm. and kind of made me think like oh i like i don't know how to write a movie but i can write short little things that Bit size things yeah that feel like contained and that have like a, a message to them and and i feel like there's something you want to say with each of them and i, f I felt like i could do that mm. so like me and my best friend from high school just spent all of grade 12 kind of just like watching sketch comedy and writing stuff and just talking about it and we just got really into doing that even though like we had nowhere to perform it we were just writing for the sake of writing and we'd share it back and forth and right. like i'd edit his stuff and he did my stuff and it was just like it was just fun. Like we, there's no reason for us to do it aside from it was like fun and you were enjoying it. Yeah, and we had someone. I think we had each other to kind of talk to about it and figure it out. So, do you keep writing uh, when you go to college? I did. So I, when I graduated high school, I kind of was like, I I, I want to either do like art school or theater school or engineering because um, I was. Good one of those is much different than the other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it was theater school. Um, but what I ended up deciding, and kind of my parents had convinced me of this, was that I was good at math and science, and I was like, kind of that was something that I was able to do. And they they like said like an engineering degree is probably like it'll probably be helpful. And they said that like their mentality and the, the thing they convinced me on was like it's harder to go back and get an engineering degree if you want to do that than it is to kind of like find a way into the arts and creative world, mm -hmm. um, which I, th I guess is true. Um, but the, the other thing they said was like, you can do arts, you can do this creative work and continue making art and stuff on the side, but it's really hard to like learn engineering on the side, um, which I think is also true. Right. <laughs> and so like when I was in college, the first year I only did class and I only did I tried to be really good about like studying and and taking all these classes and it was terrible because I wasn't great at it I remember like thinking like I spent all this time learning about like calculus and thermodynamics and all this stuff and I like failed one of the big exams and I was like oh even if I tried to spend all my time on this I'm not gonna be great at it you know and from then on, I was kind of like, okay, I'm going to keep doing school, but in order for me to like survive this, I have to find the thing that I right. love doing. And that was, that, that actually was a show, like a sketch comedy show that the engineers put on every year. Uh, it was called School Night. And 
it was it was great. It was just it was fun and it was this big show that we did every year and it culminated in like a big five performance run at like the theater at U of T and it was just like this big kind of fun production. And that was the thing that I kept doing for the rest of my time in college. Did you feel like you had to constantly work towards, uh, you know, a degree in school to please your parents? I think so. I think, well, I think that's kind of, it's kind of a yes and no, because I think it was also something that I felt like I needed to do. and um, Needed to do for yourself or for them? For myself. Like, I think... And like, I think that that's a question of kind of like, I probably grew up in an environment and in a culture where going to college and like doing grad school was sort of the default and the thing that was expected of you. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think I grew up with that mentality, like it, you have to get a bachelor's degree, then you have to get a master's degree or, um, right. Or go to grad school in some way. And I think I just had that mentality as part of me. And so it was both for myself and also something that I thought my parents wanted me to do. Did you feel the pressure of that? I don't know. I like, I didn't really think, cause I think I figured like when I was in college, this was something that I, there was a foreseeable end to it. It was like just a four year project. I kind of knew how to do it. Right. Like I, I knew how to study and take classes and write tests and kind of get through it. And it's all, it's very structured and it's kind of sort of, there's like a path to do it. Right. And so I think it was fine for that. And then when I did grad school, I did my master's in architecture. And for me, that was already like a weird rebellion or like a deviation from the plan. Like, cause no one in my architecture class had an engineering degree and no, none of my engineer friends went to architecture school after. Mm-hmm. And it, that felt like already like this move towards something that I actually wanted to do. And it was because it was more creative. It was kind of like an art school, mm-hmm. um, an art program. And that was already great and fun. And so that for me, that was like, oh, cool. Like now I get to do this for three years and and learn about how to put a project together and how to speak creatively and kind of work in that sort of environment. Yeah. And so that was that was really fun. Maybe my central question is, uh-huh. you keep talking about uh, the plan, uh-huh. but it doesn't sound like, I, I don't know who has constructed this plan entirely. Yeah, I don't either. And I <laughs> don't know what the plan is. <laughs> um, yeah. But you know there is one. I don't know if there's a plan as much as there is just like a, this idea of wanting to have a future in something or wanting to like construct Mm -hmm. something to do right the larger bigger conversation Uh is about and i don't want to speak you know and and i don't want you to speak like on behalf of the asian community Mm -hmm. but there's a really wonderful new show out called patriot act by hassan minaj Mm -hmm. which i haven't seen yet and i would love and i can't wait to like just have a moment to sit on i I will not spoil too much of it for you but but the first episode um is about the Asian community in terms of going to college mm-hmm. and feeling uh, some Asian parents feeling that their kids are not getting into their desired schools yeah. because of affirmative action. Mm-hmm. The data is, is, is tipped in the direction that's pretty wild. You know, yeah. Asian people make up 5% of America. Mm-hmm. They make up 
often 20% I think of Harvard, Mm -hmm. which is like wild numbers. Uh So the bigger point Uh is, do you feel there is a higher, I don't know, expectation in the Asian community to succeed to for their kids to do well at school? I, I feel like, well, I think with my parents and kind of with my experience, it's always been about safety and it's always been about like, what are the ways you can kind of stack the deck to reduce risk? Like that's sort of how it's always been presented to me. And that's sort of how I've always thought about it is that like, if you get into a good school, it's more likely that, that you'll get a better job after. And if you go to medical school, it's more likely you'll be able to have like a job that will support you and your family. And it's all, it's all sort of like, these are all the things that have been kind of, discussed or accepted among like I guess a certain subset of the Asian community that is about like how like what is the least what is the least risky move Mm. and what is how do you like how do you mitigate that right maybe that's the the question then yeah do you think there is a reason why the group at large is averse to risk I think it's about safety and I think it's about um I think there's like a subset of the like Asian Canadian or Asian North American population that are immigrants. And I think immigrating to a new country puts you in that mindset of like, if I have immigrated here, how do I create a life for my kids that is not going to put them at risk of suffering? Right? Stability. Yeah. And how do I create that? And how do I instill upon them um, that this is, I think a lot of it too is like, this is a foreign world. This is not a world that was built for Asian people or, or people of color to an extent, right? And this is this is sort of like how do, when you enter a world like this, what is what are the ways to sort of protect yourself and your family and your kids against all the mm-hmm. the hard stuff, right? And I think part of that is, I mean, academia also I think is in general a very um, sort of Asian. Like it's it's heavily populated with Asian people and Asian American people, and it's sort of one of those industries that um, it has become sort of safe, like a safe place or a safe path or a safe kind of route for Asian American or Asian Canadian kids to do, because there is a precedent for it and because there are Asians in that system and in that mm. institution, and I think like that sort of goes and the thing that makes that makes me think of is sort of like what are the boxes or what are the fields that we're allowed to be right safe or find success in yeah there seems to be very clear restrictions yeah absolutely and i think that's something that i always grew up with and like like it was never framed to me that way for me it was framed like oh if you be a lawyer you'll be safe if you be a doctor it'll be safe and that's a good path and it was not until recently that i realized like oh these are that's because these are fields that like asian people have sort of been allowed to be successful at or have sort of been that's like the a predefined mm-hmm. when i grew up i knew like i knew asian people who were doctors and i knew lawyers who were asian people and like it's sort of like a oh like there's a way to do that right. i didn't really know any writers who were asian or like i didn't know that many there weren't a lot of Asian people on screen. Like there, that was always a thing that I just did not think was a path for me because mm-hmm. there were there were not enough people for it to 
become like a thing that you thought you could do. So has it been challenging to find your footing in this world where, where there are less clear examples? Yes and no. Like, I don't think I, I, I think part of my personality is that I've always pushed back against that box. And like, I've, I've always been uncomfortable again. Like, I think if there is sort of like a predisposed path or like a set of steps that will lead to a thing. What box do you mean? Like, I think, I think, I think in general, I mean like a type of career or like a, a field maybe. Um, but if there's a way that I can see myself doing that thing and like, I know like if I do it for 10 years, I'll be at this place and it's kind of predetermined and I, I have, I can see where that ends up. It's kind of, it kind of gets frustrating and boring to me because Mm -hmm. then I'm like, okay, well that's one path. And I sort of understand how that works. And if you do that, you'll end up here and that's great. And so now that that's been figured out by other people, I don't need to like be another example of that thing. Right. It's more exciting for me to be like, here's the thing I have no idea how to like do or get into and it's it's more fun to like try to figure that out Mm. for me it seems like you've been constantly rejecting very clear paths for a while yeah it's i mean it's weird because i think like there's also i think it's a rejection while trying to (laughs) maintain like a a foot in that so like so i can continue doing it safely right (laughs) just in case exactly um but i'd say like i think that's pretty accurate to at least what i think i'm doing Mm. yeah yeah, I mean, like in in architecture school, I was also like writing plays on the side, and I had started kind of being on social media more and kind of writing jokes on there, and um, and just trying to find ways to be creative in different ways, and and sort of basically just like escape the confines of of school and of mm. the architecture program. Seems like there's a lot of escaping going on. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know what I'm escaping from. Um, but I guess like there's just, there's always been a feeling of like, what is, if I'm in this world, if I'm in ar- the architecture school world for a while, and then I know what a life as an architect is, then what is the thing that's not that? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it seems like you're trying to escape predictability. Maybe, maybe a little bit. Yeah. Um, I definitely feel that. I think like, I think there's like a part of me that is really excited about the unknown and about like a challenge and about kind of this thing that feels like a risk and it's kind of thrilling to like try to achieve that or like kind of follow that Mm -hmm. in a way. Was sort of creating this voice online Mm -hmm. part of diving into that unknown risk or, or were you less fearful in that in that space. I think I was less fearful and I think a lot of it came back to like the idea that that was sort of like my coping mechanism. Like that was sort of my way of making the intense like stress and pressure of architecture school manageable. Right. Because I could go on there and like tell jokes and be silly and talk to people I really liked and like make friends and kind of do all that stuff online and find people who were funny and strange in ways that I felt I was like as well. Kinship. Yeah. And like those, like it felt a certain subset of my personality, like those, my people were online and I couldn't find those in school. When was the moment where you realized, oh, this is like a little more than me just like dicking around on Twitter? That's a good question. 
I think at some point you there's a there's a shift in how people respond to you or how people sort of talk at you or about you on the internet mm-hmm. that kind of forces you to change how you think of what you're doing yes this Uh, this is interesting i like this you know like i think it's there's that weird like for a while it was just like here a bunch of funny people and we're just like tweeting at each other and chatting all the time and kind of trying to make each other laugh and then eventually it's kind of like you see strangers who are like oh you should follow this person or you start to see people that you don't know um who are who are sort of responding to you and i think that changes your idea of wh- who you're saying this stuff to and who's reading it. Mm-hmm. And I think it, I, like for me, it kind of forced me to think about, um, well, I think, I think it kind of made me think about like responsibility a bit more. Like it, it, I felt I like there have been so many moments where I've kind of like woken up and had this weird feeling of like, Oh, like a hundred people, a hundred thousand first a hundred people follow me and that's weird right and then like eventually like, oh a hundred a hundred thousand people can read what i say and there's a weird kind of terror to that but also a weird feeling of like well in that case i feel like i should be a good person mm-hmm. and i i like I, I think there's like a responsibility to not like putting more garbage on the internet and so I think those were the aspects of the stuff that I wanted to, cause like, I think I very easily could go online and just be critical of a bunch of stuff and kind of just do that and, and add to like this criticism, this is the kind of like culture of criticism and culture of kind of negativity. Um, not that those are the same, but I think there's a version of that. And then there's, a version where I'm like, I don't need to like keep those shitty opinions that I have. Like, I don't need to put those out into the world. I can keep right. those to myself and I can put the, the aspects that I feel like are kind of about connecting with people and about being hopeful and about sort of creating like a, like making myself laugh and kind of trying to find a bit of happiness. Like that's the stuff, that's the aspect of me that I want to kind of have other people see mm. or have, connect with other people in a way so what you put out there is undergoing a filtration process sort of yeah i think so i also think like i've just also never really been the type of person to like be vocal about the negative stuff anyway in your life yeah like i i think i'd rather make stuff that i like and make stuff that's fun and kind of be i think like for me also something that i realized i've i think about in response to like this thing sucks or like I didn't like that is part of me is like oh well it's great that they made that like it's great that that like it like it's cool that someone somehow made that thing because it all feels so impossible to me that I'm kind of just like okay cool as long as it's not like actively harmful or like destructive in its message Mm -hmm. I normally I'm just like okay that wasn't for me other people seem to like it right it's cool that that happened but this positivity seems completely in line with with you Mm -hmm. when you think back of when you think back on the kind of teenager Mm -hmm. you were Uh what comes to mind are just the spikes of joy is what you said yeah so it seems since you were you know Ten, uh-huh. sure. I don't know, whenever yeah. you became self-aware, maybe it was between nine and twelve. Uh-huh. I'm guessing uh-huh. you've been pretty, I don't know, adamant about remaining positive. 
I've tried. I think it's like a conscious. I think it's like an active thing because I think there's it's also a conscious been, choice. Yeah, there's because there also been like very long periods in my life, and I think I like tend to. I think I, I, I actively you're good try at blocking not to dwell it out. Yeah, or at least like not dwelling on it, maybe. Mm-hmm. But like, like, yeah, my I, like so many of my periods in my life were just like totally miserable and kind of dwelling on bad things and having like these depressive episodes where I couldn't get out of bed and everything was really difficult. And mm-hmm. um, I think for people who are listening and are uh-huh. writers, uh-huh. this especially is something they're interested in. Uh-huh. Do you have a time in your life aside from 2016 and Trump getting elected mm-hmm. where you felt like you couldn't get out of that malaise? Yeah. Yeah. That was my first, like my entire first year of college was like that. Um, that was after high school, I had a really bad sort of breakup and really like intent, like there was, it was like just heartbreak. And then that just led to being in school and feeling like I wasn't supposed to be there and I wasn't really making friends and I just felt lost and I didn't know what I was doing. And I would just like, that whole year was just me sort of in this very low point where like, I I don't remember a single good thing that happened that year. Like, I think I was just trying to get through it and I was really struggling and it was really hard. And I thought of dropping out of school. I kind of like had talked to a bunch of people about like, I just like flunked out of this or I just flunked this huge class. What do I do? Mm. And it was just like, I, I really didn't feel happy at all. And I think that was like one of the first sort of like long depressive moments. But I also try, like, I think when I think back on school, I gloss over that part, you know, um, in Why? my head. I, I'm not, I don't know. I like, I, 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 it must be, I think part of it is an active thing. It's like, I don't want to dwell on that because I know what it feels like to dwell on that. And I, and I don't like that feeling and Mm -hmm. I try not to. And I think there are enough things that have happened in my like time at college that there are things I can think back on and think of the good stuff and the stuff that I enjoyed. Mm. Um, But yeah. Do you think that, this approach to uh, interpreting your life, mm-hmm. which is what you're doing, you're you're being selective about yeah. what you choose to dwell on. Uh-huh. It obviously is contributing to your writing on Twitter uh-huh. on, and, and in your book. Yeah. And maybe even uh, in your writing for BoJack. Sure. I know you just okay. got the job. Uh-huh. Um, where, at least online, it is positive. Mm-hmm. Do you think... This may be a stretch, but do you think you are perhaps denying yourself through your writing? Like you're you're not allowing your writing to be a certain thing mm-hmm. that may be very honest to who you are because it yeah. is not positive or it is not immediately charming question. or funny. Yeah, I think I mean no, I don't think that I'm denying myself at all. I think um, I think a lot of the stuff that I end up like the stuff that I end up writing that goes on Twitter is. It starts with, it usually, like, I think I usually tweet more when I'm incredibly unhappy. (laughs) And it sort of starts from that moment, from that point. And I think, like, the act of writing that thing sort of helps me sort through something or puts towards something that I want to tell myself or I want to believe. And I think that 
helps me a lot. Um, but it, it starts from the, the point of like getting into that space and kind of dwelling there and thinking of what the, like, for me, it's kind of like what, what the turn is, right? Like if, what, if there's a turn of the joke, like what is the turn of taking this thing that is really bothering me or is that I'm deeply upset about and turning that into something that is not as upsetting. And then I also think the, like, the thing that frustrates me a lot about, again, this idea of like what internet celebrity means or whatever that phrase is, is that is the assumption that the stuff that you put online is representative of your entire body of work and your voice and and what you're able to do. And I think that's that frustrates me a lot because I've written three or four plays now that most people have not read. And I've written two pilots and a movie outline and a bunch of other style and like a bunch of essays that are in a drawer somewhere and songs and all these different things that I just have not, that are not viewable, that are just mm -hmm. sitting in my computer, right? And that those are things that I've worked on that no one has access to and that people haven't seen. And I feel like that is more representative of my voice and my work as a writer than just what's on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, right now I'm comfortable with that. Like I'm fine with that. I, I, and I like that. And I like that there are opportunities for me to do stuff that branches away from it. Right. Um, this sounds like kind of the turn for you, mm -hmm. right? If we're talking about turns and jokes yeah. and in stories, yeah, the turn in your life seems to be coming up here. Right? Sure. Is that does that feel right? Does it seem like you want to? I think so. Do yeah. something more. Yeah, I think I well, I think one of the big turns is kind of like um, being able to figure out how to make a living off of writing mm -hmm. and off of creative work, and that's not something that I had access to until very recently. And like the way I've thought of myself has always been as a writer and not as like a Twitter person. And it's kind of funny to me the way those things shake out for different people. Um, like something that I've, I've sort of been really into lately is kind of tracking the careers of, of certain writers and certain people. And I think a lot of them, who are you thinking about? Well, right now, like the two examples that come to mind are like Donald Glover and Mike Birbiglia, mm -hmm. who both started off doing stuff on the internet, right? Like Mike had a blog for a while, right? Is that, I think that's right. Yeah, I believe so. And he started reading those things that he blogged in front of people and that's how he became a stand-up mm -hmm. um and then donald glover had like his in his Derek comedy sketch group and that was something right. that i watched as a in high school with my friend who i wrote sketches with that was one of our big things and that is forgotten now right like that's not how you talk about those people right um and i'm sure there are so many and i like and yet internet. all but those people uh -huh. are all doing you know sean clements and dominic dirks are all doing different things in comedy it's just that most people do not associate Donald Glover with sure. those people anymore. Yeah. Uh -huh. Even though it's it's weird to trace the lineage of all that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think like there's there's something interesting where and you see it now with like the, the types of I think part of it is like kind of how it's labeled for different people. But like some of the people that I love on Twitter who I think are really great writers who are also on Twitter are not talked about as like Twitter people. Mm hmm. Or they have moved off of it, or there's some there is that element of like evolution or change in their career or in their credits or in the stuff that they're working on that 
transitions them out of just being a Twitter person to right. being a writer and a comedian. And you want that transition? I don't know. Like, I, I, I think I do, but I also love Twitter. And I, I, I think, I don't love Twitter. I don't love Twitter as, like, the, the platform and as the um, corporation and right. as the thing. But I love I didn't kind think of, you were friends with Jack. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I, I, I kind of love tweeting Mm-hmm. And I, I get something out of it personally, and it's it's. I think part of it is just like the, that it feels like there's a community there that I haven't been able to find anywhere else, and I think that's something that I think I'll always kind of have and and go back to, and I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also feel this urgency to sort of do more and 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 kind of be. Um, to write more and to kind of not prove myself, but just to do stuff in other mediums. Cause that's where I think that's where that like idea of change and of, of wanting to do other stuff comes back is like, now I have this Twitter thing and I sort of feel like there is a rhythm to it that I, that I feel comfortable about. And I, I really love it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's now, what's next? Like now, what is the thing that I can, do next that is confusing and challenging and that is in, that interests me well i i think uh you're gonna find out it's like scary and exciting but i, I hope so i'm sure when you do you can come back on yeah absolutely <laughs> johnny son thank you so much thank you so much Special thanks this week to Brittany Gilpin for arranging today's interview. If you want to read Johnny's work, you can do so in his debut book. It's called Everyone's an Alien When You're an Alien Too. You can also check out his illustrations in a book called Good Morning, Good Night by him and Lynn manuel Miranda. It's put up by Random House. Both of these books are available online and in select stores. Lastly, if you don't follow Johnny on Twitter already, his handle is at Johnny Sun. If you do not have a Twitter, well, you know, buy the book. To learn more about Johnny and our podcast, be sure to visit our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. There you'll find all of our episodes that we've done for the past two years. We're also on iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. As always, The show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, our associate producer is Elliot Weintraub, and the show is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators 
whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you, and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry, and me, I'll be there too. Enter now at T-Mobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 